take your Bible and turn over to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. We're continuing our in-depth study, and we're digging deep in Genesis. And it's the foundation of the Bible. It's very important as we continue on. And today we're going to make a final look at the creation story in a way, and then next week we're moving our narrative to pretty much character study of Abraham and then on to Lot and Jacob and Joseph and some of the key figures in the book of Genesis. So it's going to be a different kind of study. But I encourage you to take out your notes if you would and follow along. It's very important. And as I often say, you can fill in the blanks. And even if you take this home and throw it away, you'll still remember more if you don't fill in the blanks, okay? So that's why we do it. Just a word to those that are watching online as well. We're just uh, grateful that we can connect in this way. And I just want to remind you that we're all united together. Even if you can't be here physically, we're glad that you're here with us online and YouTube, Facebook, and our other platforms as well. So we're going to look at today, Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9 in our scripture reading. Pride that leads to confusion. It says in Genesis 11, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a town with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Verse 5, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, God says, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them from the face of all the earth. And may God add his blessing at the reading of his word this morning. We're going to talk about pride. Pride is probably... The hardest sin for us to deal with in our own lives. But I begin with a story that goes like this. There was a pastor who had a a parishioner come into his office on a Monday morning after the Sunday service and began to share with him a lot of unfounded um, stories and his grievances against the pastor. And the pastor just sat and listened. And then he did something very interesting before he said anything. He went into the washroom He got a basin and filled it with water and brought a towel. And he came and he said to the man, here's my response. These things you're saying are untrue and unfounded, but I'm willing to ask you for forgiveness anyway. And then he began to wash the man's feet. And all of a sudden the man broke down and cried because of the humility that was expressed toward him. You see, humility is a strength, not a weakness. Back in the time the scriptures were written, humility was a weakness in the Roman Empire. It was something you didn't want to do. It showed that you were, you were not very strong. But over time, because of the Christians, it became known as a character quality to be aspired to. 
And so when we think of humility, it's not a weakness, it's a strength. Keep that in the background of your mind as we look at chapter 11. And this is very interesting how chapter 10 and chapter 11 are put together. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, explains the arrangement of the genealogies in chapter 10. So when you go home, you can go home and today read chapter 10, if you would, and we're just going to summarize it. But chapter 10 is called the Table of Nations. And after the scripture reading we just read, this is what happened in chapter 10 as God scattered the people and gave groups of them unique languages. And that's why I gave you a map this week. Because as you look at this, you can see, and we'll talk about briefly, the names of Noah's son's descendants and where they ended up. This occurred in about 2200 B.C. Notice in chapter 10, all the descendants coming from Noah's sons. You see that down below the map, the Noah's family, the little graph there that's horizontal that shows you where the genealogy began. 14 were from Japheth, 30 from Ham, and 26 from Shem in chapter 10. The purpose of the genealogy of chapter 10 is not to show the ancestry of people, but to show the spread over the uh, ge geographical spread and the political spread and the beginning of nations and how it all turned out. These people groups came, became known as tribes, as clans, as families, as nomads as they roamed the area around the promised land. The table of nations showed blessing and curses, God's desire to replenish the earth, that man was disobedient still even after the flood toward God. They developed new civilizations and government structures unique to their own culture and their own language. They also had a constant tension of competition with one another that led to holy wars. Most wars that occur in our history are related to some kind of religious differences, if you look back at that in time. Well, Japheth's descendants became the northern people you see on your map up in Europe and the Asian continent, up in what we know as Russia today. In chapter 9, verse 27 of Genesis, God promised Japheth remarkable expansion, enlarge his tents, give him great territory, and it was accomplished as a result of God's dispersion of his people. Ham's descendants became the people of East and Southern Mesopotamia, Northern Africa, to the east of Israel and those areas. And then Sham's descendants became the people of God, the Hebrew nation of Israel. So notice in chapter 10 how this chapter begins and ends as we summarize it. In verse 1, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. Verse 32, at the end of that chapter, these are the clans of the sons of Noah. According to their genealogies and their nations, and from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Now we move to where we are today. We're going to look at chapter 11, which will be our focus this morning. First thing on your outline, notice what they said. They said, let us make a name for ourselves. Let us, the collective group of people that had one language, that were living in one area, they said, let us make a name for ourselves. In verses 1 through 9, we see it starts with God's proposed judgment again on the people, but not as drastic as the last time when he had the flood. Then in verses 10 through 26, we see that what was proposed in the first nine verses came to pass. There were approximately a thousand years between the flood and the building of the Tower of Babel and the city 
that surrounded it. And pride was the biggest issue with the people. And it was the pride that turned them from God. And we're going to see the ultimate picture of pride here. First of all, the people spurned God's command. They spurned God's command. Look at verses 1 and 2, as we just read. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now you'll notice that in their talk to one another, God is not even mentioned. He's not even thought of. How quickly they forgot God's judgment just generations before by the big flood that destroyed their, you know, the people on the earth at that time. This was direct disobedience to God's command to go out and multiply and fill the earth. They were not moving away from one another. They had a common language and they thought they could build themselves a city and a tower to heaven and they could do anything without God. That's a dangerous place to be, thinking that you are self-sufficient, you're independent of God. Proverbs 10, 24 says, what the wicked dreads will come upon him. Pride for you and I is one of the toughest sins for us to deal with. If left unchecked, pride will bring destruction to your life. Let me say that again. Left unchecked, pride will destroy your life. I think about what happened to Lucifer, who is the archangel, who is the head of worship in heaven. They say he was the most beautiful angel that God had created. And Isaiah 14, because of his five I wills, because of his pride, God cast him out of heaven, and we know him as Satan, the deceiver, the liar today. And he's bent on taking as many people with him to hell as he can and destroying the testimony of Christians so we will not be effective in sharing the gospel with others. Isaiah 14, it says, How are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn? How you're cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will set on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the grave, and ultimately to hell. Pride destroyed Lucifer. Pride will destroy us. In Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. In 1 John 2, 16 and 17, it kind of gives you the root basis for all sin. And listen to what John the Apostle said, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Pride comes from the world. It comes from Satan. Think of a story about Muhammad Ali, one of the greatest boxers of all time, maybe the greatest of all. And he was on an airplane, and, uh, and uh, he was telling people that he was the greatest of all in his braggadocious way. And a female flight attendant came by and noticed. He said, Mr. Ali, you don't have your seatbelt on. He said, well, Superman doesn't need a seatbelt. And the woman flight attendant said, yeah, but Superman doesn't need a plane either. So Muhammad Ali, filled with pride. Pride is the only disease known to man that makes everyone sick except the one who has it. You know, we can point it out in other people's lives, but it's hard for us to see it in our own selves. Pride is a very subtle thing. Paul W. Powell once observed, pride is so subtle that if we aren't careful, we'll be proud of our humility. When this happens, our goodness becomes badness. 
our virtues become vices. I think of a little Sunday school teacher who was talking about the uh, Pharisee and the publican and the opportunity they had to pray. And the Pharisee looked up to heaven and said, I thank God I'm not like these sinners, these common people, these publicans around me. And the sinner looked down to the ground because he wasn't worthy and beat his chest and said, God, forgive me a sinner. And then the Sunday school teacher said, let's pray and be thankful we're not the Pharisee, right? And so if we're not careful, that even in our humility, we can become proud ourselves. It's a very subtle thing. Developing an attitude of humility is the antidote for the sin of pride. In Romans 12, 3, Paul said, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Let us think of others before ourselves. Luke 14 But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Well, let's look at verse three of chapter 11 where we see the building techniques described in the making of bricks for their uh, town, but also their their, town. the Tower of Babel that they were building. This verse is a good indication that Moses wrote the Pentateuch because he gives a good description of bricks. And since he was in Egypt and he was there when they had to make bricks because they were slaves to the Egyptians, he had a good understanding of what it was. And so this is a good way for us to see that more than likely is that many people believe that he wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. In Genesis 11, 3, and they said to one another, come, Let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for for mortar. Bitumen was like an asphalt they developed to seal something. The bricks were found in the area by archaeological digs at the time of the Tower of Babel had names of gods on the bricks. They found the type of bricks that are mentioned here in the book of Genesis. An example of that are the Babylonians. Babylonian accounts of the building of the city of Babylon refer to its construction in heaven by the gods as a celestial city as an expression of pride. These accounts of the Babylonian city, Babylon, says it was made by the same process of brick making described in verse 3. And every brick inscribed with the name of the Babylonian god Marduk. Also the ziggurat, the step-like tower believed to have been first erected in Babylon, was said to have its top in the heavens. This artificial mountain became the center of worship in the city, a miniature temple being at the top of the tower. And the Babylonians took great pride in their building. They boasted of their city as not only impregnable, but also as the heavenly city, the gate of God. So what was the purpose for building a city in the Tower of Babel? Well, another point on your outline, the people wanted to steal God's glory. The people wanted to steal God's glory. And if you read in the Bible, God does not want anyone to take away from his glory. In Genesis 11, 4, it says, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. The sin was committed here was not the building of the Tower of Babel, but the motive behind it. 
They wanted to be independent of God. They were anti-kingdom of God. They wanted to brag about their accomplishments. This is the first place we see the idea of secular humanism. Secular humanism is the promotion of human values and achievements to the exclusion of theological ones. In short, it's the worship of self, of mankind. It's putting man at the center of the universe, and he can build himself up by his own bootstraps as long as he improves in his education and his abilities and his experiences. He doesn't need God. It's actually a religion. You can give, donate money to the humanist group, and it's tax-exempt according to the Supreme Court. It's considered a religion. Now, here's a little chart on the screen that I got from the Moody Bible Commentary, and it shows you the difference between secular humanism and theism, or our God who comes to be with us. You see man's single language universally understood, man dwelling together, man's declaration to draw away from God, man's tower reaching up. But what does our God do? Our God, we'll see in a few moments, is coming down. That he's declaring to draw closer to man, that he's scattering man, and God differentiating man's language to prevent universal understanding. Secular humanism is the polar opposite of Christianity, of theism, because we have a God who wants to come and be with us and be involved in the details of our life and to realize that we have to be dependent on someone outside of ourselves. Look back at Genesis 11.4. He says, let us build, the men say. Let us make a name for ourselves. That word name there in the Hebrew means reputation, a reputation separate from God. They want a complete independence from him. They didn't want to obey God's command to grow the population to spread out throughout the earth. And it's so interesting, the contrast later in Genesis chapter 12, when God comes to Abram and God calls Abram and he says to him that you're going to be the father of many nations if you will obey my commands. And as long as Abraham obeyed God's command, his name was renowned throughout the world. What a contrast. So our application here is this is pride and our life, if left unchecked, leads to destruction. Pride in our life, if left unchecked, leads to destruction. And we're going to see how that occurs. We move now to God's response to the actions of man. God says, let us disperse man and divide them into nations. Let us disperse man and divide them into nations. Look at verses 5 and 6 of Genesis 11. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Verse 5 is the key to chapter 11. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Notice in verse 5 it says, God is coming down to man. Now, God's a spirit, and he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's not literally coming down, but he's putting in a language that we can understand, that he wants to be with his people, that he's interested. Notice that word see in verse 5. That word see in verse 5 in the Hebrew means that he wants to be involved in every detail of his created beings' lives. And we say amen to that. We're so grateful that God is 
interested in who we are, that we're not just a number, but that we are intimately important to him as our Abba Father. He always cares about what we're going through and the details in our life. Sometimes we think we don't want to bother God with the minutiae details of our life, of things that bother us. But God is in the details, as we heard last week from Helmut Welk, even down to your very DNA and your cells. God made you who you are, unique from everyone else. So God is coming down with absolute power and swift judgment to save man from himself. Aren't we thankful that God doesn't answer all of our prayers, that sometimes he saves us from ourselves, from what we desire? He's stepping in much more quickly than he did with the flood, though. He didn't want sin to rise to that level. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says, Thus, what they would not do in obedience, scatter over the earth, he did for them in judgment. And here's a lesson we can learn about this story, that our greatest strength can be our greatest weakness. Sometimes the thing that we are best at, if we leave it unchecked, if we don't put it under the spirit of God to be in control of it, it can become our greatest weakness. The greatest fear these people had is that God would scatter them, and he did just that. And God enjoys people living and taking pride in their country, and that's why he separated these people, so that they could have their own language, to have their own culture, to be happy and patriotic within their own country. This is the beginning of, which is a term that's become popular lately, of nationalism. And nationalism is a, a positive thing. One commentator said the judgment of God upon man's first attempt at one world government was not only a clear warning against all such schemes, but also an endorsement of what is called nationalism. Although not ideal form of human organization, nationalism has proven to be the safest for the preservation of personal liberty in a sinful world. It's what binds people together in a country, in a culture, the language, the way that they live with one another. Well, second of all, we see the dispersion of the people here. The dispersion of the people. In verses 7 through 9, come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. Verse 8, so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Notice God speaking on behalf of the Trinity. Let us, let us go down. Babel, the word Babel means confusion. And he set them off to set up groups of people, as we said, and civilizations and eventually governments, as noted in Genesis 10 and the later part of chapter 11 and onward in the Bible. So the dispersion of the people, and then we see the development of the languages. The development of the languages. They would all have different languages. And it's interesting that some commentators believe that that one language that they originally had was a Semitic language. It may have been Hebrew. And we'll see later on in Zechariah that one day we're going to all be in heaven and we're going to have one language. So maybe we need to brush up on our Hebrew because maybe that's what we're going to be speaking in heaven. I don't know. But God moves man from one language to I googled it this week, to 6,500 languages today. Think of all the diversity in language and culture in our world. 
And God used a variety of languages in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came down on those disciples. And they went out and they spoke in other tongues or other known languages to the people around them in Jerusalem who had gathered there for various reasons and they shared the gospel in their known languages. One day, as I said, God's going to return all of us to one heavenly language. And I didn't know that until I was studying it this week. When we gather around the throne and sing his praises and to worship him. Mark these verses down. Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. And on that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. A pure speech as we gather around to praise God. What a day that will be. From 6,500 languages to in unison speaking and praising God with one heavenly language. Our application here is that God always carries out his sovereign plan. He always does. That even we were, when we're disobedient and when we push back from God, he still has a way, even when evil occurs, to bring his plan to pass, to bring glory to himself. Man's schemes and Satan's plans cannot stop God from doing his kingdom work. Our last point today is this, let the nations begin. Let the nations begin. Genesis chapter 11, verses 10 through 26. God's heart is for life and expansion. And that's what he was all about when he said to Noah's sons, be fruitful and multiply, scatter over the earth, enjoy the vast creation that I've made called planet earth. Don't just stay in one collective place. Moses lays out here how life moved on and progressed in the second part of this chapter. And we're not going to read verses from that, but I encourage you to study it if you like, and we'll make a distinction here in a moment about one particular genealogy. But the differences in the genealogy of chapters 5 and 11, first of all, death is not mentioned in chapter 11. In chapter 11, Moses focuses on Terah, not Shem, the son of Noah in chapter 11. We'll see why in just a moment. There are 10 generations listed from uh, chapter 11, verses 10 through 26, just like there's 10 generations in chapter 5. And the age of death changed from chapter 5 to chapter 11. So God's heart is for life and expansion, but God's heart is for Israel. And we see all the way back here in Genesis 11, the speck of the beginning of Israel. God finishes this section of Genesis chapter 11 with hope. He uses this chapter to get us ready for God working through Israel. God had brought Israel out of Egypt in order to give them their own land, to be their own people, to deliver them from slavery from Egypt. And one thing God required of them that they would bring unity together if they obeyed and did what God said. That was the kind of way to be unified was by obeying God and his commands, not man taking pride in himself and trying to take it on and do what he thought was best. Sadly, Israel followed the ways of those who built the great city and the Tower of Babel, and so then they had to scatter as well. 
They had to end up in Assyrian captivity in Babylon and in the current time, other places around the world. God's plan will be accomplished not because of man, but in spite of man and his sinful nature. Look at verse 26, our last verse today. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. The main contribution of this passage is the linking of Abram with the line of Shem, one of Noah's sons. The ancestor of Israel lies here. It's interesting, archaeological material shows that many of these names that are on this map and other places through archaeological digs are found around the place known as Haran. Shem was blessed and passes the blessing on down to the birth of Abram. As we said, there'll be a dramatic change as we move into chapter 12 and the rest of this book. The entire book of Genesis is a narrative, but now Moses turns his uh, view toward character studies and what we can learn from the life, first of all, of Abraham as we look at chapter 12 next week. God is going to call Abram out of a worldly upbringing to fulfill God's promises. Our final application is this. Follow the call, follow the call to keep God's promises that provide joy, life, and blessing. Follow the call to keep God's promises that provide joy, life, and blessing. We're going to talk specifically next week on the call of Abraham. And what is the calling God has for you in this current season of your life? Our key thought to remember as we think of this whole chapter 11 is that no one can thwart God's plan for his creation. Just remember that you and I, our arms are too short to box with God. Then when we try to defy God, it may, may as well be like spitting into the wind. That we're wasting our time because we have to depend and lean on him and come to him in a humble way. There's a Sunday school teacher who had some four-year-olds in the class and she asked this question. She says, what's today? And the little girl raised her hand and said, it's Palm Sunday. And what happened on Palm Sunday? Well, Jesus went into Jerusalem. And then she says, well, what's next week? And the little girl raised her hand and said, it's Easter Sunday. And she said, well, that's great. That's a great answer. And then what happened? Well, Jesus came back from the dead. He came out of the grave. And before the teacher could congratulate her, the little girl said, and if he sees, if he sees a shadow, he's going to go back into the grave for seven more weeks. <laughs> Folks, I want to remind you that nothing, nothing can thwart God's plan. Nothing could keep him in the grave. That the resurrection is our hope as we're on this side of the cross. And may we remember that. The hope of Israel has become our hope as Gentiles as we share the gospel with others that God's kingdom work is still strong and working even in this time of COVID-19, even in this time of, of ethnic unrest in our country. God is at work in amazing ways. Let's find hope in that. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this chapter and for what its meaning is. Lord, we see the contrast of man trying to live without God, trying to take things into his own hands, trying even to thwart the plans of God. And Father, may we learn from that. Lord, there's times in our life, whether subtle or intentionally, we let our pride get the best of us, that we try to take things into our own hands, that we try to move Jesus to the passenger side of the car and we try to take the steering wheel and take control of our lives and then we face problems and disappointments and heartaches. 
I pray today that you'll help us to be mindful of these folks at the Tower of Babel and how God even took that and furthered his kingdom. We just praise you and thank you and help us to find hope in you today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.